Well, good morning, Disciples Church. If you're visiting here with us today, I want to introduce myself. I'm Joshua Kirstein. I get the pleasure to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. And um, just thankful to be his, thankful to be used by him for his purposes, and um, joyful to get to preach his authoritative word. God's word is such a gift, such a blessing um, to, to have it in our in the translation that we can understand in our language and to get to watch people, groups who have come to Saving Faith um, have the scriptures translated into their language for the first time and they'll celebrate for weeks. I mean, real parties in the streets kind of celebrations to have the word of God. Um, it's just such a gift. And I pray we, we treasure it. I pray that uh, we see clearly in and through it, God has revealed himself to us to know him um, that for those whom he would elect to, to give saving faith, new birth, new life in Christ, um, to, to grow and to be redeemed, to move away from the old life into the new, um, surrounded by you or many people with amazing testimonies of just what God has done uh, to bring us out of addiction, out of the mire, out of hardship, out of selfishness, um, to lives that glorify him, marriages that are being strengthened and families that are growing and uh, it's a joy it's a joy to be here in our new campus in the 129 year history of our church it's been an important last 10 years through a lot of reformation and refining and uh, we're very excited about where we're at where we're headed and so thankful to have you here with us if I haven't met you I look forward to getting to know you um, we're in the middle of a series in the letter of James um, joyful to be so we're calling this series faith at work James is so wonderful so practical and yet so deep. And so here we are in week 12, and we're just finishing chapter 1 uh, and moving into chapter 2 today. And so uh, the theme of, of today, and no partiality, part 1, is really going to be uh, a beginning of a, of a couple parts as we work through this. And I'm excited to, to dig in. So I want to pick up where we left off last week, which is the very end of chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, if you grab your Bibles and look there with me. Um, verse 27 of James 1 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James finishes his clarity of what pure religion looks like by circling back to include a lifestyle of obedience to God's word. To be doers of the word, as we covered a few weeks ago, and not just hearers only, means that you obey God, that you remain faithful to Him. Even though we struggle, even though we fall down, we get up, we continue to walk by faith and not by sight. It means we look to, as redeemed people, walk in the ways of God and not of the ungodly. This is His emphasis True faith in Jesus means that we will keep ourselves unstained from the world. Notice the word keep here is really a reference to practice, that, that there's a practice um, that happens. What we have to see is that we're unstained, first and foremost, not by anything that we did, but by the perfect work of Jesus alone uh, on the cross of Calvary. The call then of those who are saved in Christ 
is a life of sanctification, of maturing in Christ-likeness. To walk in the ways of the Lord. This command we see all throughout Scripture. I could go on and on, but a few examples, especially to the New Testament believers, we see Paul write in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Conformity is to act in accordance or harmony with standards, attitudes, or practices that belong to someone else, another group or person. And so I just ask you to make it personal for you today. Who are you conforming to in your life? Whose standards and attitudes and practices do you live by? Paul is saying, do not be conformed to the world, but be conformed to Christ. We are to conform to Jesus, to be known for Jesus to look more and more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're not called to conform to the world as redeemed children of God, to not look like the world, but instead to be set apart, to keep oneself, as James says here today, unstained from the world. First Peter 1.14, Peter chimes in, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, of the old self, the self that was dead in sin, enslaved in the old ways, that God has given you new birth, that there is a new work in you that should bring about real fruit and evidence of his work in your life. We're not conformed to the passions of the former ignorance. Ephesians 4.17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles here is a reference to unbelievers. See different applications of that word throughout Scripture. To not walk as unbelievers but as believers. And even jumping in the Old Testament we could do this for days that sweet just gift of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Let us stop and consider what the stain of the world looks like. He's saying very clearly to live unto Christ and not unto the world. So what are the ways of the wicked? What are the, the, the mode of, of the sinner, the, of the scoffer, the ways of the world? Well, it's a lifestyle of vice, of sin. 
instead of a virtue, life that honors God, righteousness. And, and as we comb through the Holy Scriptures, we see uh, a barrage of definition and explanation. Just to give you a taste of a sampling of Scriptures, Mark 7, Romans 1, Romans 13, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Revelation 21. Just out of that sampling of text, here is what vice or sin or the ways of the world looks like. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Adultery. Coveting. Wickedness. Deceit. Sensuality. Envy. Slander, pride, foolishness, idleness, homosexuality, malice, strife, gossip, hatred of God, haughtiness, disobedience to parents, ruthless, orgies, Drunkenness, quarreling, jealousy, sorcery, enmity, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, and obscene talk. Those are from the text of that collection of passages from God's Word. I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's helpful to consider it this way. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Church, we must take this serious. And here's why. Why what James has given us today is, in just the very finish of verse 27, is so valuable John says it in his first letter, 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the Father is not in him. James will say later in in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 4, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The problem, though, is you're surrounded by a culture, and even growingly in a culture of Christendom, where there's a false gospel being propagated and put out for tolerance for sin. Even a promoting in this of a misapplication of grace. Understand clearly, God did not send His Son, God the Son, eternal, take on flesh, die in the place of undeserving sinners so that we could go on sinning and justifying worldliness in the name of grace? That's a perversion of the gospel. Romans 6.1, Paul addresses this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. God has saved us by His grace from eternal hell so that we can practice, keep 
live out in faith eternal holiness. He saved us, church, to be set apart. This is simple, and yet it is often thrown aside by many people who profess Jesus as the Lord of their lives. And so this is why James is saying this to his hearers. As he's fighting in love for them and for faith that continues to work itself out and remain faithful, understand that true faith means true obedience. True religion means true devotion to God and not the ways of the sinful world. So, I ask you to be practical with yourself today and be honest. What are the practices or the things that you allow to be part of your daily life that are simply and clearly the ways of the world? In and of themselves are sinful. Not only must we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, as James said clearly in verse 21, but we are to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's a practice, there's a fight, as we see here in verse 27. I pray you hear this today with real conviction that leads to real action. What a blessing. To be convicted without action is just wasted emotion. I pray the Holy Spirit's work in your life and the preaching of His Word today produces change, produces a desire to honor Him above all else, to be used by Him for His glorious purposes. That with seriousness, we heed these warnings to not think that we are religious and then yet be deceived. But to have pure religion or or devotion to God is a way to understand that phrase, in lasting faith. Again, see it again and again, but John emphasizes it so clearly in, in 1 John 2.15. I read you 15, but let me read you 16 with it, with 16 and 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And and can I just say, this is our wonderful journey to go on together. There's no perfection, this side of glory, in any of us but Christ. The joyful journey, the fellowship of the body that we're in, this local family, is to link arms together and walk these things out. To, to not be people who only hear and then don't do. But to get to work, as, as hard as that will be, the tears and the challenges to life that may come with obeying God are all worth it. And we love to do that together. So I pray that you would act in these ways and lean in that we could journey together as James is doing here with his blood-bought brothers and sisters. Look with me now at chapter 2. James 2, verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James continues now to highlight what the endurers of the word looks like. Here he pleads with his blood-bought family to hold 
to the faith by not showing partiality to others. His use of the word hold here is similar to his use of the word keep just a moment ago in verse 27. It's what faith at work looks like. We keep going. We hold. We, we continue. The letter of James is so important to us because it is, it is direct to show us what it looks like for those of us who are truly saved and set free by Jesus and what our life and lifestyle in Christ looks like ongoingly. So here's what it looks like now when the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us day by day. And so he's given us these things to see and hold them up against our lives. Is there evidence of that? And, and if there's not, and there's true faith there, then we will heed that word and, and begin to act and mature. Maybe it just reveals a, la- a layer of immaturity in your life. And let's go, let's, let's grow wherever that is for you forth in obedience he's showing us what it looks like to be more and more like christ to endure hardship and put away sin and to walk by faith ongoingly it is the lord jesus church whom we serve he is our master he is our lord he's the lord of glory He bought us from chains of sin that condemned us to eternal hell and brought us into his kingdom where he rules and reigns. Amen? Does Jesus Christ rule and reign in your life? Is your faith and your devotion to him Growing. One of the signs that it is growing is that you do not show partiality. Maybe by now you're done with that word. You're like, okay, tell me what that means. I don't really use that word a lot. Let's define it. Partiality is a state or character of being partial or of showing bias or prejudice. One of the reasons why we are in Christ to show no partiality or prejudice is because God himself is not partial or prejudice. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17 through 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods, little g gods. And the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice to the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Church, I love how the emphasis of God's impartiality is linked to his justice to the fatherless and the widows, just as James did here. In James 1, 27, and now in verse 2, 1 through 4. God's word is sweet in that way. Praise be to him. God's impartiality is seen in his judgment as well. Uh, in places like Romans 2, 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
but glory and peace, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Every person will be judged by the condition of their soul. There's no partiality in this. It's laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Proverbs 24, 23, in the wisdom articles we see the simple and yet needed statement, partiality in judging is not good. Beloved, let us see the eternal and unchanging characteristics of God in showing no partiality. Let us heed this call to grow in his likeness to also not be partial. And can I just say, maybe this way, in case you're still wrestling with just that word, any kind of racism, any kind of elitism, economic or social bias, at all, is the work of sinful flesh. Church, we must see that our tendency to show favoritism or partiality is sin and is not in line with our faith in Christ or the testimony of God and his people. James digs in further to give us an example of partiality at work. It says in verse 2 through 4, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself? yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts is this imagery given not a picture of the way mankind in our current culture operates almost in such a way we're almost kind of taught to operate this way we exalt the one we want to befriend the elite and those we think will get us somewhere or benefit us somehow. And we separate ourselves or look down on those in a low spot. Those in prison, those who are homeless, those who smell, those who look different, those who dress different than we do or than you do. We do this because we're selfish in our sin. Because we don't want to be bothered by people that we think don't help advance us. We, 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 we don't have time for it. We don't want to add their needs or their smells. We don't want them to lower how other people perceive us. Church, we must see 
this is sin. And he says it clearly. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? These judgments or distinctions or separations are wrong in two ways. Let me speak to that. Number one, who are we to become judges of people's value based on superficial realities or preferences? According to the Scripture, we're all created in the image of God. Are we not? We show love and respect for all mankind and not sinful partiality if we're to honor God and be like Him. We do not let superficial realities cause judgment or preference. And if you're honest or like me, you're going, this one's tough. I see so many layers how this is at work in my life. The second side of the coin of why this is wrong, it is sin to make distinctions of others. James calls these evil thoughts. Those are strong words. These are real things that we think and sometimes talk about, sometimes even act on, and might even go so far to promote. See, earlier when I mentioned that partiality is ways of man-made distinction in sin that cause things like racism, judgment of another person based on their color of their skin, or their culture, or the way they dress, or the way they look, or the way they socially are, intellectually are, or economically are. But then you might have quickly done what the flesh is good at doing, which is go, yeah, but I'm not a racist, so... Maybe this, this one isn't for me. And so maybe then you're not the person who promotes superiority of one race over another. But are you guilty of ever having someone of another race approach you or, or see a group of another race act together in a social setting by which you looked at them with judgment and your thoughts were critical of them? simply because they're different than you. It's all the same stuff. You might just not have gotten to a place where you are a promoter of that idea. Do you see the difference? I'm guilty of it. So let me ask you, how are you guilty of doing this? How has it played out in your days, in your lives, in the seasons of your life? Are you quick to compartmentalize the poor? Maybe it's the other way. Maybe you're quick to compartmentalize the rich. And the way we process that. It was real before me this morning. I watched a very well-dressed black woman pull up to the place where I went to grab my coffee early this morning in probably a $90,000 Mercedes-Benz. I had to make war with all the ways that our culture and trends and the way that the flesh thinks about all that stuff. It's real. Do you, are you critical of people who dress different than you? 
the way other cultures or family traditions play out, people who are in society, maybe just socially different, uh, mentally at a different place than you. You kind of look across and you're like, man, I really, I'd like to be friends with that person, but not really that person. Just based on superficial observation. And here's the sad reality is that we can make the mistake of handling sinful partiality, addressing it, seeing it, but we handle it in fleshly ways where we actually apply sinful partiality by overswinging the pendulum. So we say, okay, I see I'm guilty of it here, but instead of having a God-centered gospel response and transformation of the Holy Spirit to it, I overswing the pendulum over here, and now I'm responding to sinful partiality with sinful partiality. So, and the culture's doing this. So, so one race is guilty of a certain trend, and so now then we turn the hatred towards another, the other race, somehow trying to balance the scales. This is man-made answers to man-made problems and not the gospel. I want to give you a sad and sobering example. And before I give it to you, I want to say that any judgment of partiality based on skin color is sinful. Simple. True. There's a growing movement even among evangelical leaders, guys that for a long time I've known or run with or studied who are missing the mark here now in this current season. Missing gospel application to sinful realities instead turning to cultural, fleshly solutions to essentially show a different version of partiality as the solution. For example, one prominent evangelical leader who has been a blessing in my life for many seasons, many of you would know and respect, I won't name him by name, said publicly at a national conference recently that there was a group of people that they had hired to help them identify qualified elders for their growing church, huge church. So they used a headhunting group to do some, some work of research to help qualify the biblical, the high biblical standards of what a man is to be to be a shepherd pastor of the local flock and was asked for any preference in a certain situation. The situation revealed was this, that he would choose an African-American man who was biblically ranked in his qualifications as a seven over a Caucasian man who was biblically ranked as an eight in his effort to balance the scales of racial inequality. God's standards for a biblically qualified man have nothing to do with race. And so in that revealing, I'm going to choose lower biblical standards to essentially show partiality in choosing the black man over the white man. This is sin. That's not a gospel answer to that situation. It's a gross error in showing partiality. It's man-made answers. It's cultural answers and not gospel answers. I pray for this brother. I deeply love and care for him. I pray he sees the error of this and of this statement. Partiality for another party is not a solution to the sin of partiality. 
the gospel is. God changing our hearts is. Giving us new eyes to see and, and the love that He has, the care He has to do away with our sinful evaluation and compartmentalization that we do with people. God, help us. God, help us to look to you and not to man-made solutions to address our sin. A quick clarity on what James is saying here that I want to touch on because it's often misapplied. Some will use this text to make the case that we should never judge anybody. That is an idea of Christendom that is not biblical. You probably heard it. You might even be guilty of saying it. Hey, we're not to judge others. Like that never applies. That's not what the Bible teaches. Um, and I can't give a full exposition of this topic because it's its own sermon series. But in synopsis, Jesus himself tells us to exercise righteous judgment. John seven twenty four. The judgment we are to exercise has to be holy, has to be righteous. Um, especially related to spiritual matters. Uh, in differentiating between darkness and light. There is a separation in the things and the ways of God and what honors God and the things and the ways of fallen man and what doesn't honor God. We're to exercise wise judgment in differentiating what that is. Okay, so in areas of, of sin and righteousness, especially among the body of Christ, we are to fight for each other, love each other enough Point out sin. I'm not loving you to not point out sin. We're called to do it. Practice the one another's. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he's, he's, he's lovingly rebuking the Corinthian church and says in verse 11 through 13, Now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. To not even eat with such a one. For what I what have I to do with judging outsiders? We'll come to the back to this. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Now he's speaking of the fact that they did not live out what we're instructed to do in Matthew 18, which is to lovingly call a brother to repentance. And if he refuses to bring another, if he refuses to bring him before the church of the leadership, if he refuses to treat him as an unbeliever, they didn't do that. They kept their arms around him and say, man, we're going to... No, he's saying, this is tainting the testimony of the gospel. And you are to execute wise and righteous judgment in this situation for the ongoing unrepentance of sin in someone who's claiming the name of Jesus defames the gospel and is working against the very testimony of the church. So it's out of love we do this for God and for the person that eventually they would see their error in their ways to repent and return or prove to have never been saved by which they continue to live a life of sin unrepentantly. Notice the clarity that we don't judge those outside the body of Christ. Why? Because their entire lives are under the judgment of God. They have a judge. They're actively under his judgment. Apart from Christ, unto a, if they remain apart from Christ, unto eternal judgment, condemnation. So we need not act as judge for an unbeliever because they have one. 
But for those in the body of Christ, we are to love them, walk with them, speak honestly about these things, to execute righteous judgment. So we don't ignore all the scripture, but instead we exercise righteous judgment in the ways God instructs us to do. We also do what James is saying here and what we've seen clearly throughout Scripture, which is to show no partiality. Now watch this. When it comes to matters of preference and style and race and economic status and cultural differences and on and on. To do this, we practice. To do this is to practice self-righteousness when you get into that stuff. It's to bring judgment on things that God himself does not judge. And Jesus is a really great example, church, for us in how we interact with those around us in society. In his incarnation, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, did not show favoritism to anyone he interacted with by superficial means. He was willing to speak with the wealthy and the common beggar, interact with the virtuous woman and the prostitute, the educated and the ignorant, the religious and the irreligious, the outcast and the culturally elite the law-abiding citizen, and the criminal. Jesus' main concern was to highlight the condition of the soul. And yeah, you can think of, well, Jesus often brought, brought rebuke. He did, in conditions of spiritual matters, in the way lives were being lived out, either to perpetuate sin and what dishonored God, or lives that were truly honoring God in true faith, versus superficial faith that was all around in the Judaizers. Lastly, one quick clarity, because it's likely to come up as a question. What about all the texts that talk about honoring or showing respect to certain people groups? You have to be able to differentiate the difference between partiality, that, that one certain group is not more important than another, male or female, leader or follower, whatever all those different differentiations we do, that's partiality. The scriptures, though, do give us a number of places. For example, a sweet one is in Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I won't ask those with gray heads to raise their hands, but uh, we all will be there one day. It'll be harder to tell that I'm there. I already am there. It's one way to get rid of your gray. Shave it all off. <laughs> um, but there is, an, there, there is a call to honoring our elders. I long for us to do this well. Love them and show them a respect that God has called for. Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians as another example, 5, 12 through 13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Speaking of pastors, elders, the the leaders of the local flock, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So there's an honor, there's a respect that happens. But again, it's not dipping into a place of partiality by which you would consider these people more important than others. Look to befriend them more than others. This is a call for honor and respect. Paul, Peter gets into this as well as far as honoring our authorities, or the kings, to show them honor. 1 Peter 2.17. So there is this outplay of respect and honor that we show these kinds of people because of kind of uniqueness of who they are, their 
rank in life, but it, it is not crossing the threshold of, I, I have this great high respect because of what it gets me or this partiality by which then I will dishonor or treat with disrespect somebody else. It's not that. I, I pray, Christians, that we take this to heart today. I, I, the, 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 we take true and serious inventory for the state of our feelings, thoughts, our words, our actions towards others. Those who truly walk by faith will repent of sinful partiality that they've shown to others. They'll confess it, agree with God that it's sin, and take up a new path in light of this gospel truth. That we will love those who are different than us and not lump people together in ways that are sinful. We will show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Amen? Look with me at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James says, listen, my beloved brothers. He, he, he just said beloved. He just called them beloved a moment ago, a few verses ago. And here he is saying it again. So why? Why does he continue to do that? Because he loves his blood-bought family. He loves them deeply. Man, I love, I love what God's doing in our church in this area. To come to discover what it is to truly be family. To walk together. To love each other in truth and honesty. To not play superficial games. If you ask the... the core members of our church, they will say this is one of the sweetest things that God's doing in the life of our body in this last tenure of our Reformation. And it takes time, it takes work, but it's happening. I praise God for that. And that term, blood-bought family, is deep, and it means a lot for us. Because the reality is, among family who are unsaved, there's great turmoil and lostness and even separation. God's Word says He actually came to divide based on faith even our blood family. But there will be no division eternally among the blood-bought family. And so in many ways, come to understand that your blood-bought family is of this sweet, eternal, amazing value. Um, and it's just so awesome to see what God's doing. And we see it in the apostles. We see it in the way they talk to each other, in the way they fight for each other. Listen, my beloved brothers. He wants, he loves them. And he loves his God. And he wants them to thrive in their faith and, and to see their faith remain at work for the, for the glory of the Lord. And so I, I say it to you today. Listen. Lean in. Don't miss this. Don't get busy with all the other stuff with life that just keeps you from this good stuff, the God stuff, the refining stuff. Lean into the ways of God, to the truths of God. Listen and claim the promises of God. So he then, as he gets their attention again, he reorients them to their gospel reality, their kingdom reality. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom? 
We understand you're in Christ, you're a chosen people. We're low in life, low in the economy of life, and he chose us to be rich. He loved us so much that he didn't give us riches that were temporary, but riches that would never fade eternally. Rich in faith in God. This is one of the sweetest parts of this passage. I pray you see it with me. Think about with me for a moment the vibrancy and the richness of saving faith. What that really means for all of your life. Faith that ignites a surrender and an abandon of of your life once lived for you and the temporary things of the world to a life that is rich in the goodness and the glory of God. A life that lives for another, Jesus Christ. Some people, some people think getting stupid rich would be so great. Oh, think about you know, the car I drive, the house we live in, the vacations we'd go on, the restaurants we would eat at. Some people will think crazy intimacy would just be so great. Or some people think awesome powers and, and skills w- would make life so fun. And while maybe some of that's true for a short time, in the end, what is any of that for? To be rich in faith is to radically submit to and sacrificially live for the glory and the fame of the King who reigns over all things, the King who will reign forever and ever. Rich in faith means every little thing you do is for the eternal glory of Him who is worthy. It means every interaction And struggle is a vehicle of gospel proclamation and making much of the name of Jesus. It means everything that you once did apart from faith was sin and eternally worthless. But now all that you do in faith glorifies God and is eternal in value. Amen? Church, I want you to to join me in a higher view and thankfulness for your true, life-changing, saving faith. It is a, a gift of God. It is the greatest gift of God, and in Christ you've been given it. Because of God's grace alone and the work, perfect work of Christ alone, your faith alone is the greatest gift God has ever given you. Philippians 1.29 says it clearly, for it has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you. Not only oh, gifted to you for the sake of Christ, ultimately for His glory, not only that you believe, have faith, that's a gift, but also suffer for His sake. Praise God for the gift of faith. So a two-sided inquiry for you to take some inventory. Do you see the richness of the faith God has given you? Do you see how rich it is? 
what you have because of it? Does it boggle you and cause you to praise him? On the other side of the coin, is your faith rich, full, or is it partial? Sometimes you walk by faith, sometimes by sight. Sometimes you trust God. Sometimes you really know that you belong to him. No, no, no. To walk by faith is to trust God with all your heart. To know that you're his in every way. That everything you are and have belongs to him and is for your joy. James is saying, lean in, beloved, and know that you were wretched in sin and poor in the things of the temporary life. And he chose you to be rich in faith. I pray this is overwhelming you like it did for me. I was writing, preparing, singing, God, this sermon, I'm just dancing in my seat. I pray it's that way for you. See the richness of these things, of these realities. To sing, to, to leave church having interacted with the living God and his holy word. And there is, there's a joy, there's a conviction, there's, there, there's a presence that you are not just hearers but doers. To live out that rich faith, to live it boldly. And it gets better. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? It is by God's sovereign election and saving grace to give us saving faith in the perfect work of Christ that we are adopted as sons and daughters into his eternal kingdom. Colossians 1, 12-14. Listen, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, the work of Jesus, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have a share of that glorious eternal inheritance. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, kingdom language, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Are you, church, beloved, do you walk as kingdom citizens, heirs, adopted sons and daughters? Is that your reality? Because it is in Christ. Paul quotes Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. <laughs> that means the best stuff that I can think of. It's better. It's better. Kingdom of God. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. He says it's in verse, uh, uh, that's Matthew 25, 34. But James says here in the end of verse 5, which he has promised to those who love him. Who, who is it that loves God? Only those with saving faith in God. Everyone else hates God. You're an enemy of God apart from Christ. You cannot know God, love God, serve God in your sin. You are either born again and therefore in faith love God or you're dead in sin and therefore stand against God. He's promised this to those who love him. 
Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so here's how James rounds this out. All this good news to rich faith and kingdom citizenship and should cause us to walk by faith, to remain in faith, to honor God by keeping oneself unstained from the world. Showing no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But when we live out our lives in sin and show partiality, we end up dishonoring. And that's where he just circles back. Look at 7, 6, and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So he's just reminding his hearers of the faulty results of sinful partiality. That what it looks like when we end up befriending the world and drawing near to those who will exploit us. If we show partiality and do not keep ourselves unstained from the world, we prove to not be of true faith. True faith produces these things, church. It grows in these things. It endures in these things. Our true faith will produce unstained living. Our true faith, we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. We'll fulfill the great commandment of God, which is where James is going to go in verse 8 next week. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. To close, will you just close your eyes for a second? Let me just give you a couple questions to ponder and then we'll respond in song and exaltation to God before we leave. Do, do you show love to others? Or does your flesh cause you to judge them with partiality and therefore contempt? Do you keep yourself unstained from the world or do you live out the vices of worldliness? Do you live a dishonoring life according to your flesh or an honoring life for that honorable name which, by which we were called? Do you rejoice in the fact that God has chosen you who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? I pray it be so. I pray you come to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior if you never have. If your faith in him be true, these things will be also Let's praise him together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your good word and just what it does and how it works in and through us to shape us and to mold us, to convict us and draw us near. Lord, I, I pray that we would really heed these things. We converse. We would go so far to confess sin and, and act in a new way according to the gospel. It's what real repentance is that we lean into each other in the relationships you've given us, opportunities to grow together and be accountable. Lean into your word to continue to instruct us this week, the Holy Spirit, to motivate our actions for the glory of God. And then in all of this, there would be the most authentic beholding and worship of the one true God. That our lives would, would well up and overflow with a joy and a song and a life lived for your glory. Hear us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing this last song.